Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 16. I'm back after uh, uh, a missed week of episodes. I mentioned uh, in the last episode, Episode 15, that this is sometimes going to happen, that I skip a week. I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can. (laughs) But some weeks I'm just not able to right now as I uh, immerse myself and sink into my new role as Executive Director of Vibrant Faith. There are some weeks where I just don't have enough margin. So, and um, I this is the kind of uh, podcast that is hard to rush. Um, I, I have to sink into these um, each time, and and if I don't have the margin for it, I'm I I just don't feel comfortable doing it. So here we are, episode sixteen. Glad to be back with you. My name is Rick. I'm author of the uh, Jesus Center Daily, released last October along with another string of Jesus-centered kinds of things. Jesus-Centered Life is a book I wrote several years ago that sort of kicked off this podcast in the first place. I wrote a book called Spiritual Grit. And uh, a long time ago, I wrote a book called Sifted, which was then republished, re-edited and republished under the name The God Who Fights For You. So that was a a few years ago. And I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. My life revolves around all things Jesus, um, that sounds uh, almost quaint <laughs> to say that, but it's actually true. Uh, my working life revolves around all things Jesus, and so does the rest of my life. I'm just magnetically drawn to him. And I think if if you're listening to this podcast, there's something about that sentence I just said that resonates with you too. You're magnetically drawn to him. So this is the eighth episode in a new series that I've called Jesus People, And now it's about to be an old series. I think this is going to be the next to last episode in this series, and then we're going to start something new. But I thought it would be good for us to start out by just remembering something from the last episode, which in that Jesus People episode, we focused on the Father, someone Jesus references all the time, and uh, someone with whom Jesus retreats solo to spend time with all the time. And is always pointing to and admiring and uh, urging people to appreciate the beauty of his father's heart. So I thought it'd be good for us to remember, we talked about in the last episode, our why is what's really important in life, not just what you do, but why you do it. And so we tried to explore the whys of God's heart, excuse me, the whys of God's heart. Here are a few things we uncovered last week about the whys of God's heart. Um, Why does God do what he does? And why does he say what he says? And what is it? uh, What is the why in God's heart that Jesus so much admires? Well, there's, he has a passion for all kinds of beauty, much of it revealed through challenge and difficulty, all of it created by him and reflected in who we are. So God is the source of all beauty. And when he created us, he was trying to embed the reflection of beauty in who we are. Uh, Another aspect of God's why 
is that his, it, it, our desires, our desires, the things that drive us at our deepest level really matter to him. And he wants us to experience joy in our life. He's bent on giving us life and not just life, abundant life. And he respects and honors and celebrates authenticity because he wants a real relationship with real people. And therefore, he's wholly secure in himself. We can be real with him because he is not insecure. So there's a few reminders of the whys of God's heart. And I think it's important to remember those things um, because we're headed in a, in a completely different direction today. But all of those whys of God's heart are going to matter as we explore this next uh this next encounter that Jesus has. So really, Jesus people means that we're exploring the people who um, rammed into Jesus somehow. Either they were with him for a long period of time, or they had a a life-changing encounter with him, or they only had a brushing encounter with him that nevertheless changed their life. So uh, on this podcast, I talk about rather often um, a, a strange phrase when it as it relates to our relationship with Jesus, I know it must sound strange when I say this, but I thought I'd just uh, preface what we're going to dive into here with this. Um, I call uh, living in relationship with Jesus and taking risks in that relationship with Him, playing on the playground, playing on the playground. It's not a phrase you hear very often when we talk about our relationship with Jesus, but considering what we've embraced about the heart of the Father and therefore the heart of Jesus and the heart of the spirit of Jesus, um, we, we, we can't consider those things without considering relationship. Uh, what, what the relationship is the portal, the lens through which Jesus sees everything about us. So what does that relationship look like? I think um, my friend Bob Krulish um, nailed what that relationship really looks like from Jesus's perspective. My friend Bob used to call uh, doing things in our relationship with Jesus playing. He said that the Christian life is all about play. Now, this really upended me when Bob, uh, when I started hanging around Bob and listening to him talk about this, it really infected my soul. And it resonated with me at a deep level that this was true. Play, of course, is the work of children. And children are the only ones, Jesus says, who enter or live inside the kingdom of God. Therefore, play in our relationship with Jesus is the portal into true intimacy and impact and satisfaction. And it's play the way children play naturally, meaning uh, children don't play the way adults do. You know, when you hear uh, an adult kind of in a in a, in a kind of maybe a snarky way, say, we're going to do, we're going to play this weekend. They're talking about adult play. And it most often doesn't resemble the way children play. If you watch, if you go anywhere on YouTube, for instance, and just plug in children at play, what you'll see are little kids, maybe sometimes playing on a playground. And if you watch for just a minute or two, you'll notice that children enter the playground with a sense of wonder and delight and anticipation. They, they're taking everything in and uh, their curiosity is at a heightened state and they try stuff. They just try stuff. 
what you might see is, is a, a little toddler, a little, a little child running toward the swing set. Uh, just like uh, like a tumbleweed would blow across the playground. They run toward the swing set. And if they've never uh, been on the swing before, they might look around for an adult to help them understand how to get onto the swing. But once they get onto the swing, they're they're experimenting, they're practicing with it. They're pushing the envelope. They're finding out what the boundaries of, of playing on that thing, uh, what, what those boundaries are. Uh, kids sometimes fall down on the playground. And when they fall down, they cry. And when they're done crying, what do they do? They, they get this big smile on their face and they go right back at it. They go right back at the playground. They try something new. Their curiosity drives them. They have not yet been conditioned to stop, stop playing because sometimes things don't work out. They keep at it. They have uh, sort of a, a, a fundamental momentum toward play. So just because something doesn't happen the way they expect, they keep playing anyway. They keep coming back to it. And like I said before, if something uh, goes wrong and they fall down and they hurt themselves, um, they need some time for lament and grief, but then they can't help themselves. They want to get right back on the playground and play some more. Um, if you watch a video on YouTube of, of children at play, you'll also notice they just seem to have a self-generating energy. The, the longer they're playing, the more energy they have to play. So when you, when you notice kids playing on a playground and there are adults around, for the most part, the children ignore the adults for the most part. Once they've locked on to something or, they're, or they've uh, decided that the space they're in is safe, often because there's an adult nearby, if they sense that the, the, the space they're in that's, is safe, then they feel safe to experiment and explore. And they, they feel like they have a, a, a moving safety net underneath them. As long as they know the person of authority is nearby, they don't need to typically constantly check in with that person of authority. They just go play. Now, what, if, what happens if the adult isn't there? Well, there's a lot more caution at that point. If they don't sense the safety net nearby, um, kids don't feel as safe to experiment. So if you take all of that and think about that in terms of how we relate with Jesus in a playful way, some of the connections you can make there are when, when we have decided about the goodness of Jesus' heart and we've decided or experienced him as being uh, involved with us on a moment-to-moment -moment basis throughout our day, we move through our day with a sense of the safety net nearby, that the authority figure in our life is nearby, and that we have freedom to explore our curiosity with him, to play in, on the playground of our relationship with him. We don't have to worry about getting everything right or performing for other people. We're not that concerned about falling down. We know it's going to hurt in the moment, but we're going to just go right back at it afterwards. Um, our curiosity drives us to, to try new risks and to do things maybe we haven't done before without the burden of producing and performing on the other end of that. Um, there's a freedom in how we relate with Jesus and the possibilities for how we relate with him are more open than closed. That, that's what it would translate to if we actually related to Jesus the way children play in a playground. You can think about it this way, uh, the difference between the children and adults and how they play. 
if I just dumped a pile of random objects in front of you, just stuff I dragged out, uh, little things I dragged up from my basement, for instance, if I just piled a bunch of stuff in front of you and, um, and I said, in your family, however big your family is, I want you to take these random objects and make a game out of them. You have to use everything that I've piled there, every single item, but just together create a game that you can play that uses all those parts. Um, if it was a mixed group in your family, if there were both children and adults in it, the, the two of you, the adult and the children, would enter into this in a very different way, you would notice. As adults, we have learned that taking risks uh, sometimes hurts and failure, sometimes the, the, the hurt from that lasts for a long time. And that we've been conditioned uh, in life and in the church that the main thing is to get it right, that, that others are going to be judging and evaluating what we create. So we better get it right because our identity is on the line here. And when we create something that, that um, isn't quite right, then we expect others to point that out and judge it. So we feel kind of the tension of creating very often. Whereas a child doesn't carry all that baggage. To I mean, that's the simplest way to, to think about it. The child doesn't carry all that baggage about, oh, I have to get this absolutely right or I'm going to get judged for it or people point out what's wrong with my identity if I don't get this right. They just haven't um, learned how to be insecure quite in that way yet. Our insecurity is learned over time for the most part. We learn the hard way that our, our identity seems fragile and open to being uh, toppled over at any moment. So we try to hide that fragility around others in our relationships. And this is where Jesus is wanting us to move back into the spirit of a child where we don't perform for him, where our production is not his primary uh, interest in the relationship, and where we feel free to create and mess around with stuff and see how things work in our relationship with him without this heavy burden. Um, so if you think about uh, what, what's hard for you as an adult now, about being in playful situations like this, where you're asked to create or show others your creation, it actually gets harder to do that the older you get, doesn't it? Um, we, it's a kind of a prison that we construct for ourselves because of the way we experience the world. That prison is a prison of expectations. And we load those expectations around play activities and creativity and risk-taking, we load those expectations onto that. And it's what keeps us uh, from, from fully entering in, from fully being vulnerable, from fully being authentic in our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with others. So I mentioned, you know, we're continuing this series called Jesus People, where we're exploring the heart of Jesus through the lens of his friends and enemies. So Today, we're going to explore his relationship with children. And what, what can we notice about the way that he's with children that can really impact the way we live our everyday life? And I'm starting every episode, as you remember, with a quote from Dr. Peter Kreeft, who's the Boston University professor and C.S. Lewis scholar. He said this, Christ changed every human being he ever met 
If anyone claims to have met him without being changed, he's not met him at all. When you touch him, you touch lightning. And perhaps the most unexplored aspect of this impact that he has on others is his relationship with children. And it's surprising because, again, the heart of children, the questions of children, and the dependencies of children, and the habit patterns of children are all key to living in the kingdom of God. And yet we don't often look at more closely the kind of relationship Jesus had with children. Now, I've often referenced the, the uh, new TV series, The Chosen, in, on this podcast, um, because I think it's the most brilliant portrayal, the most dead-on portrayal of Jesus I've ever seen in this, you know, obviously every visual representation of Jesus and his, in his words and his actions, all of them have to uh, read into those interactions in some way. And so the chosen, uh, the, the writers and, and producers and director of the chosen often uh, include new material as they're trying to tell the story of Jesus and his followers. They include new material, but they have done, I think, on the whole, a really brilliant job of adding that to try to give you the essence of what it would have felt like to follow Jesus. Um, it, it's the closest I've ever seen. And um, one of the choices that the producers made that I thought was, I, I literally jop, dropped my jaw when I saw what they had done. The, in the first season, they where they're still introducing the characters, and mostly the first two episodes are introducing you to the, to the people who would later follow Jesus. Um, in the third episode, they, they introduce you to the heart of Jesus through an entire episode that explores his relationship with children. I thought it was incredible and an amazing prophetic choice to devote an entire episode to children. So this particular episode, by the way, has attracted the most feedback and attention in this entire two-season series so far of The Chosen. Because, uh, because it's dominated by Jesus' relationship with children and people just aren't used to seeing that. So, so uh, I thought it would be interesting for us to listen to a little segment of that episode three of season one, where you're, you're going to be listening to Jesus interact with children. And, and then we're going to talk about this on the other side of this and look at some of the, uh, uh, the times in scripture when Jesus connected with children and what we can learn from that. But first, we're going to listen to this scene. And just to set it up real quick, you're going to hear at the start of this scene, children uh, coming away from a, a, a day spent with Jesus when they were helping him with his chores and work projects that he was working on. And they were singing and laughing and telling jokes and asking questions. And you're going to hear children coming back from one of their, their day-long times with Jesus, going back home in the evening. And then the next day, they're back with Jesus and they're, and they're all sitting around in a kind of a casual environment, asking questions and pursuing Jesus's heart. So that's what we're going to hear. Uh, we'll listen to a little bit of this, and then we'll talk about it. So what did you do? I tried to walk away, but he wouldn't stop pushing me. So I pushed him so hard, he fell down. And that's why you were punished. Did you expect something different? But even Torah says eye for eye. Why should I be punished too? Yes, but that is for a judge. You are hardly in a court of law. And you, all of you, are to be special. You are to act differently than others. You tell us to be gentle, but Rabbi Josiah said Messiah would lead us against the Romans. 
that she would be a great military leader. It is important to respect your teachers and honor your parents. And Rabbi Josiah is a smart man. But many times, smart men lack wisdom. Is there anything in scripture that says Messiah will be a great military leader? There are many things about scripture that you cannot understand yet. And that is okay. That is fine. You have many years ahead of you. And God does not reveal all things at once. But children, what if many of the things that our people think about how we are to behave and how we are to treat one another are wrong? You want things to be fair. When someone wrongs you, you want to right it. And you know who else loves justice? But what does the Lord say in the law of Moses about justice and vengeance? Vengeance is mine. Yes, very good. Very good. Boys, pay attention. She doesn't even go to Torah class, huh? <laughs> the Lord loves justice. But maybe it is not ours to handle. Do you remember when David had the chance to kill King Saul, who was evil to him? But he didn't. Saul was God's anointed. And it was not the right time for justice. And God says he will have compassion on his people when... What? Let's see if someone who studies this at school is there, huh? When their strength is gone? Yes, very good. So, maybe we let God provide the justice. Hmm? Maybe we handle these things in a different way. Not trying to be the strongest all the time. Even Messiah? You will have to see. But do not expect Messiah to arrive in Jerusalem on a tall horse carrying weapons. And he will be most pleased with those of you who are the peacemakers. Where were you yesterday? I had to stay in town later on. There was a woman who needed my help. Did you bug something for her? No. You remember when I said that I have a job that is bigger than my trade? There is a woman who has had much pain in her life. And she was in trouble. So I helped her. Is she your friend? She is now. And I have chosen her and others, and more soon, to join me in traveling. Do they know you? Not yet. But what if they don't like you? <laughs> Many won't. This is my reason for being here. I still don't understand. What is your reason for being here? I'm telling you this. Because even though you are children, and the elders in your life have lived longer. Many times, adults need the faith of children. And if you hold on to this faith, really tightly, someday soon, you will understand all of what I'm saying to you. But you ask an important question, Abigail. What is my reason for being here? And the answer, for all of you the spirit of the Lord is upon me he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor 
he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah. Isaiah. I have loved spending this time with you. You are all so very special. And I hope that my next students ask the same questions you do and that they listen to my answers. But I suspect they do not have the understanding you do. And I hope that when the time comes, they will tell others about me like you have. All right, there you have it. So I apologize for that. If you heard the sound of a little barking dog in the background of some of that, that was not in the scene. That's my, um, that's my over needy Bajan Frise who does not like the UPS driver. So sorry about that. But if you think about what was surprising or even upending about this portrayal of Jesus' relationship with children, one thing you notice is that this key moment when Jesus reveals what he has come to do uh, when he quotes Isaiah, in this, in the chosen, they have him revealing that to children, his his primary purpose, uh, because the children's curiosity doesn't know they shouldn't press in to Jesus and ask him, well, we still don't understand. What are you doing here? Um, there are questions about their behavior and whether it was right or wrong. There's a kind of an openness the kids have with him because they trust him. They've been around him for a while. They trust his heart. And so they're very open and transparent about their questions, their doubts. They're uh, even, even asking him, wasn't I in the right when I did that? And giving the right answer and having him push back on it. They, they don't feel uh, like they got the wrong answer somehow. Their fundamental posture toward Jesus is an open and curious hunger to grow and learn from him, to notice what they notice about him, and to ask every single question they can about what Jesus is is uh, doing and why he's doing it. So, so uh, um, I love that scene because it's just so natural, and you start to see why children were sort of drawn magnetically to to Jesus. So. So um, I thought it would be interesting for us to take a look uh, just briefly here at a few passages of Jesus encountering children and see if we can uh, discover um, really what's happening in these encounters and what we can learn from his relationship with children. So just to start out, there's uh, three different portions in three of the four gospels that essentially say the same thing. Um, they're, they're, uh, and it's important, I'm pointing this out because it, when you get something that's almost exactly the same, in, rendered almost exactly the same in three of the gospels, you know that this was very important for that gospel writer to include in their gospel accounts. Not every gospel, obviously, includes all of the same scenes, all of the same dialogue, because they're all told from a different perspective. But in this case, these three uh, references to Jesus and the children 
were almost exactly the same in each of the gospels. And that tells you that this was very important to gospel writers to include this as a central aspect of who Jesus is. Let me just read you read to you the one that was uh, uh, listed in Luke. So this one's from Luke 18, 15 through 17. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So this is a fundamental truth, a fundamental way of seeing Jesus and his focus on children. He's inviting us to pay attention, not only to children, but the way he relates to children. There's something about children that is key to our life, our everyday life. So let's dive in to three different little sections here um, with Jesus encountering the children. And the question we're going to ask, I'll ask a question after each one that we'll, we'll go after. The, the first one is from Matthew 18. And I want you to be thinking about what does it really mean to humble yourself like a child? As we read this, what does it really mean to humble yourself like a child? This is Matthew 18, two through five. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus called the little child them and put the child among them. And then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Ooh, one of the most ominous things Jesus ever says. It's, it's him essentially getting in their face and saying, hey, there is something precious and treasured about a child. And you better beware of leading these, these children down a path that leads to sin. Um, children, uh, as a, even as a metaphoric example of our life of living in the kingdom of heaven are very, very important. Jesus is trying to say, so the question I asked you to consider as I read that was, what does it really mean to humble yourself like a child? Again, Jesus, here's what he says. Anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven and humility in this case what is it? Well, the children wanted to come to Jesus. They were eager to be near him. They ran to him. They couldn't hold themselves back from him. So this humility, if you think about it, is really the humility of one who has said, I choose to attach myself to Jesus, to pursue Jesus, to be connected to Jesus, rather than hang back and stay in control and stay safe and, and make sure that I'm still master of my own domain. Um, make sure that I guard my boundaries, guard my heart. Make sure that I'm not opening myself too far. Because if I open myself too far, who knows what could happen? I, I might risk too much. I don't want to be over vulnerable in this situation. So Jesus says the humility of a child is someone who chooses to be vulnerable who chooses to have to risk, who chooses to continue to draw near to Jesus, no matter what, 
who has sort of an eagerness in them of authenticity as they approach Jesus, who brings, as we heard in that scene, their doubts and their questions, um, like a child. Instead of the arrogance of an adult who uh, essentially says, I should already know these things. I should already uh, uh, kind of have mastered uh, what life is all about. I need to appear like I'm on top of things in life. Instead, the child has no such pretext or pretense. The child doesn't think they should be master of their domain. The child doesn't think that they should already have everything figured out about life. No, they come to Jesus who helps them understand who they are and what the purpose they were made for. The, they, they come to Jesus with a, a kind of a, a lack of expectation that they should have everything figured out already. All right, let's take a second one here real quick. Uh, these are a couple of ones that go together, one from Mark, one from Luke. So I'll just read them together. First one's from Mark 9, verses 36 through 37. Taking the child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And now from Luke 9, 47 through 48, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So here's our question from this, this, these uh, paired passages here. What does it mean to receive a child in Jesus' name? What does that mean when he says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me? Um, I think it, uh, what it means to receive a child in Jesus' name is to see the treasure of that child in Jesus and vice versa. See the treasure of Jesus in that child. Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. So when he, and he's saying this in the context of taking a child and taking that child into his arms. And he, he's saying the kind of relationship you can have with the child is both physically and emotionally and spiritually, mentally vulnerable, that there's a closeness, a physical closeness that translates to all other kinds of closeness. And that when you, when you receive a child in the name of, in the name of Jesus, you're really receiving him. It means that we're operating on a relational strata that he longs for where this, this kind of intimacy, physical and otherwise, um, is natural. It's relaxed. It's like breathing. Um, and then at the end of the Luke passage, he says, for the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Least in this case is the one who is humble enough to come to Jesus, to not stand outside of an intimate relationship with him, because, well, that's what people expect me to do. You know, again, do I have it all together? Am I in control? Am I the one in control? Do I have my life plotted out the way I need to? Am I disciplined? Am, am, am I following the principles of the Christian life well? 
No, no, no. All of that stuff doesn't mean anything to a child. A child just wants to be near Jesus, to be, to be close to Jesus, to, to spit out any question that comes to mind, to, to uh, delight in the presence of Jesus, to, to laugh in his presence because you're just delighted. You're in wonder about the things that he says and does. Receiving a child in Jesus' name means to embrace the ethic of a child and recognize that it's that same ethic in the heart of Jesus and, and the same ethic that he wants to extend into his relationship with us. Here's one last one from Matthew 18, 10. And think about this question as I read it. What is Jesus implying here and why? What is he implying here and why? Matthew 18, 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. Don't despise one of these little ones because, you know, I'll let you know, they have their angels who are continually in front of the face of my father. What he's saying is these little children have advocates. Um, they, have, they have defenders. They have uh, rescuers. They have uh, fierce warriors who are all the time in front of the face of the father advocating on their behalf. So you better not despise them. What do we know about the heart of Jesus here? He knows that this kind of innocence and vulnerability needs defending. Um, he's essentially saying um, little children have replaced the defenses that adults build up around themselves. They've replaced those defenses with him as their defense, with the, the, uh, the ferocity of heaven as their defense. Uh, and that allows them to be vulnerable and enter into intimacy in their relationship with him without setting the kind of protective boundaries and barriers around themselves that keep them from that intimacy. So what he's, what he's saying is, that little children expect to be defended and advocated for, not from their own resources, but from the resources that Jesus has. The resources of the kingdom of heaven are the resources that are brought to bear to defend that child. To what would it look like to live our lives with an expectation that in our vulnerability, we have a defender, a refuge, a fierce protector. This is what the kind of life that Jesus is inviting us into to stop doing for ourselves and expect him to do for us, to, to walk with a sense of safety in our life. I want to share one last uh, little thing here um, from a, a recent experience I had getting a brain scan of all things. I wrote a book called The Suicide Solution. And um, it's, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little more about that in a later podcast, but it's a book about um, depression and suicidality and how the, the cutting edge of science uh, converges with the, the behavior of Jesus and his relationships with people. Um, and you can learn from both. They merge together into a, uh, if you could call it a prescription for whole living. That, that fends off a deeper slide into suicidality and depression. So again, it's called The Suicide Solution. It'll be out in September. But as part of that, I got a brain scan from my co-writer, Dr. Daniel Amina. He uses a, a brain scan called SPECT scanning 
And um, I asked, I told them I wanted to experience this because we're writing about it in the book. And so I did. And it's a brain scan that, that explores blood flow in the brain and therefore activity in the brain. And uh, when I got my scan back and Dr. Amina was talking through what he saw on the scans, one of the things he pointed out was that in the middle of my brain, there's a hot spot. And usually Dr. Amina said that indicates someone who has an over empathetic place in, in their brain where they are, are hyper-conscious of um, the emotional state of other people and where those people are at and hyper-conscious of their story. And he said, in a typical scan like this, um, I'd be concerned because most people who show up with this kind of scan actually adopt the uh, struggles and the depression and the suicidality of the people around them. And he said, in your case, you have not adopted those that mentality. Instead, out of that place of hyper-consciousness of others has come a, uh, a perpetual commitment to give, to give to others out of the knowledge that, that you gain from this hyper-consciousness about them. He said, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and out of that, this was a profound experience for me because out of that, what Jesus was telling me is that what could have been an ugly thing, instead, I have used for great beauty in your life. I have used this hyper-consciousness that you have to make you aware of the others in your life. And out of that, you can give in a more profound and detailed way. Well, this is, this is the kind of beauty out of ugly that Jesus brings to us when we behave like children. And what Dr. Amina was essentially saying is, this is the impact that Jesus has had in your life. He has taken something that could have been ugly and instead he's repurposed it into beauty. This is what he wants to do with us if we will draw near to him like children. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Uh, remember, you can go to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com and look for Season 6, Episode 16 for links to everything I've talked about today. Um, please do. I'll put a link to that, that episode of The Chosen as well on there if you want to check that out. Again, this is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from RickLawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes. We'll see you again next time. <laughs>